Are you willing to put aside all speculation and announce to the people here that you are not running in 2020? No. Overall, wages are down. People are working longer hours for less money. Obama is part illegal immigrants. Uh, Noting that world leaders laughed at President Trump. Thanks to the president's trade war. You know what it is? Our new slogan, 2020. Keep America great. Thanks for joining us for another episode of 2020 Vision. This week, we're talking social media responsibility, election advertising, and the media's relationship with President Trump in the lead-up to the 2020 US presidential election. Before we meet this week's guest, let's kick things off with a listen to some of the reckoning upon social media companies and their leadership as countries like the United States begin to question their utility and role in politics and public safety. As Facebook has grown, people everywhere have gotten a powerful new tool for staying connected to the people they love. But it's clear now that we didn't do enough to prevent these tools from being used for harm as well. And that goes for fake news, for foreign interference in elections and hate speech, as well as developers and data privacy. We didn't take a broad enough view of our responsibility, and that was a big mistake. And it was my mistake, and I'm sorry. I started Facebook, I run it, and I'm responsible for what happens here. After four days in New Zealand and Australia, after being really in the part of the world that you know, has been at the center of thinking about what happened in Christchurch, about thinking what it means for technology, after in fact being frustrated by the reaction of some in the technology sector. Don't lose sight. Don't lose that sense of frustration because it needs to be channeled and it needs to be voiced and it needs to be pursued in a way that will make this the inflection point I believe it needs to be. When we actually say, wait a second, we're gonna do better. We're not gonna let the 20th century repeat itself. We're not gonna sit idly by and let Christchurch be repeated either. We're actually gonna to come together and make something happen. Claire McFarlane was previously an Assistant Secretary for Digital Economy Policy and Strategy with the Australian Government and has worked in digital innovation for companies like Telstra and Fairfax Media, having started her career with Australia's first internet service provider, Aussie Mail. These days, she's the Director of Innovation and Entrepreneurship at the United States Study Centre. Claire, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Drew. It's a pleasure to be here. You appeared in conversation with the President of Microsoft, Brad Smith, a few weeks ago, who spoke a little bit about the pressure that big tech is currently under following events like Christchurch and political interference with the US presidential election. Do you think we're generally likely to see these companies and their leadership being held more accountable in the lead up to 2020, or can we expect the sort of empty rhetoric to continue? Well, this is a really interesting question because I think that it's perhaps not empty rhetoric. I think perhaps it is a challenge of a lack of understanding okay. within the um, within the governing bodies of both the US and Australia. I just think that there is a, um, I think that there is an understanding that more needs to be done, yep. but I think there is a lack of understanding of how these companies actually work. And that was one of the things that very was really clear when Zuckerberg was in front of Congress, yes. that there were just for the nature of the questions that were asked, there was just a total lack of understanding about how new media works, how social media works. And so I think that um, to a certain extent, it's going to be 
perhaps these companies working together with government to, to outline where the boundaries and framework should be in relation to how their businesses um, function in, in society moving forward. And so it's... Uh, it's it's really interesting because I don't think that's been the situation in the past where there's been such a uh, such a disconnect perhaps between the understanding that the legislators have yep. and the nature of the way in which those those kind of businesses operate. Yeah, I suppose yeah. there is a. I mean, it is a case in some respects of of having people who aren't even using these platforms asking questions like, "Why can't you flip a switch and turn this yep. stuff off?" And yeah, yeah, that's right. And and some of the concepts around how the technology works. If you're trying to explain them to somebody who obviously clearly has no idea about how these how those types of things work, yeah. you can see that there's these kind of clear disconnects happening. And so it, it, while I think it sounds perhaps to an outsider like empty rhetoric, I actually think that a lot of it is just purely a disconnect and misunderstanding between, yeah. um, between that. And so I think that puts the onus on the tech companies a lot more to kind of step up and be really clear about where, uh, where they feel there are um, challenges for them or that they need to step up to and meet. And I think governments as well need to educate themselves. You know, one of the things that is um, when you when you look at the people who make up the parliaments in Australia and the um, and Congress, there is a very clear demographic grouping within those. They tend to be older people. Yeah. They tend to be people who are quite out of touch with how these types of media platforms work. They yeah. don't use them. They don't understand them. Um, and I think they really need to get with the program. Yeah. And white men too, right? Because I mean, a lot of, the, if we're talking about something like, you know, abuse online or trolling and things like that, I mean, often it's women and minorities who are really suffering on the end, as opposed to sort of white men who are on these, uh, on these bodies. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And in fact, one of the things, um, so cyberbullying is one of those ones. It's a really, um, it's it's a really interesting area because if you think about the generation that are making the laws around cyber cyberbullying in particular, they are, it's a generation of people who've probably never experienced cyberbullying yeah. themselves. Yeah. And so that is a really big challenge yeah. when you don't have um, policymakers who have had that direct experience. And I think we're just starting to see that shift, but. Um, but that's a big, a real disconnect. Yeah. 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 Um, Bloomberg reported last week that YouTube executives ignored warnings about letting toxic videos run rampant on that platform and that re- recommendations to curb conspiracy videos were, were sacrificed for engagement. As someone who's worked in digital innovation for technology companies yourself, can you see a way that these companies are going to be encouraged to prioritise community safety over clicks? Yeah. Again, this is another really challenging area because it's really about b- balancing the business model of a company, which is about providing value to shareholders or, or owners and, and, um, the needs of the community. So there's a, there's a tension there between those two things. And I think in the absence of clear rules of the road or legislation or whatever it is that you want to call it, then it's very, um, it's a very tricky situation for those types of companies because, it means that their focus will be much more on how do they optimise what they're doing to deliver value for shareholders, not taking into account what they should be doing and the costs associated with that for their businesses. And so um, so I think that, you know, this is an area where personally I've kind of where I flip-flop because... um, I can see the arguments around the fact that that um, legislation and regulation stymies innovation. There yep. is a, there's a clear argument around that. But by the same token, um, there are community needs and um, 
and a, and a rules-based order in which most companies operate in that doesn't seem to be applying equally in this yeah. way. And so there's this, there is this tension between those, those two things. And so I think um, encouraging companies to prioritise community means that companies will want to do the right thing, but in the absence of regulation, that it becomes a, we want to do the right thing, but but our competitors aren't and therefore yeah. what are we doing? So it becomes almost like a race to the bottom. Yep. And so, you know, this is where I think that that regulation have a really clear role to play in relation to this because they set some kind of framework and, and boundaries uh, for companies to be able to exist in. You know, and that's not just in in um, technology. That's that's across broadly across yep. the board, yeah. Yep. Yep. Uh, Donald Trump's 2020 campaign has already spent millions on Facebook and Google ads uh, more than a year out from the election. Uh, his campaign's being led by Brad Pascal, an American digital consultant. Do you think this is the reality for elections now, that campaigns are lost or won based on social media engagement and things like fundraising off of social media posts? Yeah, and this is, this is an area that is probably an emerging area. And it's been really interesting to see the way in which uh, people who've perhaps run digital um, digital parts of campaigns in the past are now taking on bigger and um, bigger roles. And I think part of that is that those technologies are playing a bigger part in the way in which we are engaging politically. But part of it, I think, is just a generational thing. So the, those that kind of first worked on the digital campaigns um, in their in their youth, um, they're now experienced enough. There's enough of them in that, you know, we're talking back to 2006, 2008. Um, they're now kind of mid-career. They've brought all of that experience with them. And so I think the fact that they're taking bigger roles in campaign um, in campaign management and bringing the expertise to bear is part part of it is just a generational thing. It's yeah. like the internet is growing up. I think um, uh, it was 30 years old this year. And so it's like the internet's growing up. It's become much more part of our mainstream life. The extent to which people are engaging with social media um, is significantly higher. The use of mobile technology in particular, um, people having their phones with them wherever they go, is changing the way in which um, politics works generally. And so I think part of it part of it is is really around that. And um, and so I think that the fundraising that's coming off the back of that um, and the social media engagement that comes off the back of that is just kind of an is just a normal evolution. And mm. and one of the things that's that is really interesting around that is um, the extent to which different platforms play a part in that. And so you know, in Australia, the penetration of Facebook usage into the population is really high. Um, statistics, kind of estimates, put it at around fifty percent of the population checks Facebook right. once a day. Like yep. that's really quite high. Yeah. Um, when you look at Twitter, the usage of Twitter is somewhat lower and is kind of around fifteen to twenty percent. Might be as high as thirty percent right. of the of the adult population in the US using Twitter, but that's that's still quite low. Yeah. Um, in That's the, so interesting because it drives so much of the conversation, certainly yeah. in media and politics. But it drives the conversation amongst the people who are engaged, yes. not necessarily amongst the people who Great are not public. engaged. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas point. Facebook probably has more engagement generally across the population. And um, and so that's that I think is why, um, you know, in Google, the, the, the usage of Google and therefore the use of Google ads um, in terms of reaching broad swathes yep. of the population is why I think the Trump campaign would have been putting so much money to Facebook and Google because their reach amongst people who are not interested in politics um, perhaps is is much 
is much greater and therefore the opportunity to influence is, is greater there. I just wanted to pick up on something you said before, which I thought was really interesting, and, and that was on the elevation of people with a digital background onto these sort of larger campaign roles. Because, I mean, usually when you think about political campaigns and, and um, things like races for the, for the White House, you'd, you'd think of someone handling social media or digital as maybe like, you know, the student intern from down the road you picked up to sort of do it as a secondary concern. And uh, it's interesting that Trump's campaign um, for 2016 um, at one point was run by Steve Bannon who came from this mm. digital news um, website and so it had sort of come from that background. So there definitely seems to be this shift, as you say, that, that you know, these digital innovators are becoming the heads of campaigns, not just, you know, a factor in them. Yeah, and if you look at, like, Brad um, Pascal, yeah, he's, yeah. like, in his early 40s, I think. Right, OK. So, and um, and even the guy who uh, who ran... Um, Obama's campaign, um, and who was kind of like the groundbreaker, and I saw him speak a few years ago, he was like the groundbreaker for the use of um, grassroots and um, and campaigning. He's like in his late 30s now. Okay. Yep. And so they're kind of, that's, that's kind of mid-career. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so uh, they're, they're, they're bringing those, those kind of skills, and I think other people are starting to recognise that. Yep. Yeah. Um, uh, do you think Australia's political parties have really evolved to the same extent that American ones or American campaigns have in regards to elections? There still seems to be a, or to me anyway, a big reliance on TV and newspaper advertising as opposed to social media here. Do you agree? Uh, yeah, I do agree. But I think, you know, what's really interesting about that is when you go and look at, so um, when you go and look at where the people are, because yep. advertising will always try to reach the biggest audience sure. that, it can, that it can possibly reach. And so um, when you look at where most Australians spend most of their time, yep. it's still on free-to-air television. Really? So okay. free-to-air television is watched by 80% of adults in metro cities. Okay. So it's de- it's declining, but it still has the largest share of viewing air- viewing hours. So it's around 50% and that's higher amongst older Australians. Wow, okay. So I tend to think that... Um, the political parties in Australia will kind of be, if I was, if I was giving them advice, yes, yes. it would it would be about splitting their funds mm-hmm. so that they would um, continue to speak to the people um, in the older demographics who are um, who they can um, convince uh, about. Uh, about having, you know, the best poli- policies and wanting to capture their vote. Um, that, you know, so the money should be going into into TV and print to a lesser extent. I'll talk about that in a minute. Yep. And then um, in terms of reaching the younger demographic, then that's where social media um, really comes it really comes into its own. Okay. And so um, really interestingly, in, in 2000, so if you kind of look at how that sh- that shift is starting to happen, um, because it's it sounds high, but there is a shift starting to happen, so particularly around print media. So in 2013, print media had about a 30% share, TV had a 30% share, and online had a 30% share. This okay. is of advertising expenditure. So right. This is where the ad dollars are going. Yep. And in 2017, that had significantly shifted. Print media had dropped to less than half of that and was 12% right. of the share. TV had 24% share, and then online had a 51% share. So um, online is essentially taking dollars a little bit from TV, yep. but largely from print media. Okay. And so that's where the that's where the advertisers are placing their money because that's where they feel that they'll so either be able to reach more people or that they can measure more effectively how they're reaching yep. um, how they're reaching people. And in 2018, so last year, the the proportion of Australians who were accessing online news surpassed traditional offline news for the first time. So that okay. was like last year was a bit of a milestone um, around that. So um, so I think in this 
in this election campaign, um, we'll see a lot more of that share of advertising, political advertising going into online. I think this will be a bit of a tipping point um, around that. But I think that... um, that a lot of that will go into online news because that is where um, where a lot of the audience is, and the the rest of the audience is, is really fractured, reaching um, into some of those other platforms. Yeah, is, and, and you're just probably not as engaged as something like news, right? Yeah, you know, people are yeah. really want having a conversation if yeah. you're engaging with that. Yeah, sort of stuff. that's right. And um, and I, one of the things I was looking for was where the growth had been. So online online news has. Um, uh, has grown um, compared to offline news. So use of news. So people are consuming more news, yep. but they're choosing to consume that news online. Okay. And so that's where the advertising, you know, would probably go. Yeah. You're appearing in an event uh, this week with the New York Times International President Stephen Dunbar-Johnson. Outlets like the New York Times appear to have done very well out of the Trump presidency so far. Do you think this is solely because of who is in the White House or the big media brands doing something different in the digital area, which is helping them as well? Yeah. Yeah. And that's, there is no doubt that media organisations are doing well out of out of Trump, okay. and um, and you only have to look at uh, like the share of eyeballs or, or share of reach to to see that. Yeah. Um, but I think you know the the New York Times um, in particular, uh, and most media organisations. But let's talk about the New York Times in particular, given that we're going to be hosting them later this week. I think they've really tuned into where consumers are looking for content and recognising strength. So um, there's always been this argument that content is king, content is king, and that people will go where great content is. But I think we're starting to actually see that now, that, that great content is, is attracting the eyeballs. And so for the New York Times, they have kind of recognised some of the strengths that they've had and they're packaging that up in different ways. You know, I was really interested to see that they've um, they've got a subscription product, which is access to their 20-year crossword archive. Oh, God. Now, to have a 20-year crossword <laughs> archive if you are a crossword aficionado, yeah. that's really valuable yeah. content that they have developed over years and years and years that they've now made available to yeah. subscribers and are monetizing in a clever way. Yeah. And the same with cooking. You know, cooking is yeah. something that people do, most people do, lots of people like, yeah. lots of people are kind of big fans of and, and – um, They've recognised that they have a, a strength in that, and um, you know, and have have set up kind of content uh, verticals around that. And I think that's a really clever strategy. Um, the, one, some of the other things I noticed, and I'm going to be really interested to ask Stephen about this later in the week, is that they have um, purchased an organisation called Wirecutter, um, which is a which is like a if you wanted to buy something yeah. like a I don't know. I had a look earlier and uh, and it was pregnancy tests. Not oh. that I'm looking to buy pregnancy tests, but, okay. you know, what are the best pregnancy <laughs> tests to buy? Right. And they yep. will tell you which are the yep. best ones to buy. Okay. Um, and then the other thing that I've noticed about the New York Times is that they've got... Um, is this like a, sorry, is this like a choice uh, Yeah, like choice, thing? yeah. Okay, so right, so I, right, think right. It, I think it's a choice kind of model, wow, which okay. is, and if you think about it, right, so there is, we are all confronted with this plethora of choices, which yeah. can be paralyzing. And so, um, you know, consumer behavior studies tell, tell us that what people really want is to choose probably between three things. Yeah. And so to have a service from a brand that you t- trust, like the New York Times, that says the three best you know, um, headphones you can buy yeah, or whatever yeah, it yeah. is um, as rated by experts who yep. you trust or yep. whether it's a community of people who've, who've rated that, you know, I, I would use that to make purchasing decisions. Yep. Um, and I think that a lot of people do use those types of services to um, to make purchasing decisions. And, and that's really smart because once you've built up um, 
brand, so you, you've got the brand of the New York Times, which leads credibility to that. And then you have people who are looking for solutions to um, cons- consumption problems that they have, which is a very first world problem to have. Um, and um, it, it, then it brings an audience in, an audience yeah. who may not be a New York Times audience, yep. but an audience who is buying pregnancy tests yep. or dishwashing detergent. And then if they can be transferred into through a network effect into reading articles for the New York Times, yep. then that's how you build and grow an audience. Yep. And so these are really smart strategies um, for media organisations to use. Another one that I that I saw which was I thought was just gold was lesson plans for educators. Oh, right. So if you've got a group of educators and you've got great content that you can package up in terms of here's a, a lesson plan for yeah. a dear teacher who's teaching this particular subject that you may not have great expertise in, um, not only does that create advocates within the educational ecosystem but also all those students who are getting um, uh, exposed to that yeah, content. Yeah. And it, the number of people who say to me um, um, the important role that Behind the News played for them oh, in their yeah. life yep. Yep. is phenomenal in Australia. So Behind yep. the News was a it's, – it's, I don't even know if it still exists. but It, 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 it is, it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, ABC. ABC yeah, News yeah. program. Yep. The number of people who, um, who talk about that um, as being kind of like – this thing that they remember from school is is really clear, and then they go on to kind of recognise that ABC as a great brand yeah. um, uh, for for content. Much of what uh, President Trump says and does um, seems to be grounded or focused on how it will play in the media. I- I'll get your thoughts on that in a moment, Claire. But mm. first, let's have a listen to some of the ways that the president has interacted with the media in the past. By the way, the world's most dishonest people are back there. Look at all the cameras going. Look at all those cameras. Unbelievable. Just sit down, please. Well, when you when you report fake news, no, when you report fake news, which CNN does a lot, you are the enemy. The of president of the United States should not refer to us as the enemy of the people. His own daughter acknowledges that, and all I'm asking you to do, Sarah, is to acknowledge that right now and right here. I, I appreciate your passion. I share it. Um, I've addressed this question. I've addressed my personal feelings. I'm here to speak on behalf of the president. He's made his comments clear. If you look at the fake news bomb, you know, so-called mainstream media right now, they're calling it a huge political bombshell yeah. on the cover of the New York Times. He said, he says it's fake news, so let's move on. I want you all to know that we are fighting the fake news. It's fake, phony, fake. Claire, obviously politicians have always thought about publicity and messaging. Uh, do you think Trump's almost singular focus on headlines, though, has had a, a transformative effect on US media? I think time will tell on this one. Um, and I think, you know, when you think about the role of the media, it's to report on the news of the day. And so I think what Trump has been doing is using the media as a tool in his kind of arsenal of domination. Um, and so I'm not so sure it will have a transformative effect on the media because I think that when he's gone that the media will go back to uh, focusing on the news of the day. Mm-hmm. And and so but but I'm I'm unsure about this because I think that the surprising and different way in which Trump has focused on headlines uh, has had an effect that may be long term but I but I but I'm not sure what the effect will be at this point. I think definitely an interest in terms definitely there's this kind of uh, shift in the news cycle in that it's faster than it ever has been before. But to me, it seems that that 
that can only happen to a certain point. You can't end up with a new cycle that gets ever increasingly faster because fatigue will just set in. Yeah. And so I think at some point fatigue will set in and that um, and the, the organisations that will benefit out of that will be the organisations that have um, a credible name, credible journalists, um, deep expertise will be the ones that come out of that looking looking well and being able to um, deal with whoever the f- president is that follows Trump. So I think it's a bit early to tell. It, it would make a fascinating study. Obviously, social media and Twitter is a platform that the president has utilised unlike any other US leader. Uh, do you expect that's something that will continue for future presidents? Has he forced political leaders now to change the way that they communicate? So I think to a certain extent this will change the way in which political leaders communicate because because people will expect that change. And um, and I think that there has been um, an expectation set with the way in which Trump communicates and communicates almost his stream of consciousness in, in some ways um, that that is quite authentic to him. So you get, I mean, I don't know him. Uh, <laughs> thankfully. Um, and, um, but I do get the sense that he's kind of a stream of consciousness in this person. He's using this in a tool in his manufactured persona um, is is kind of how I would characterise it. And removing gatekeepers as well, right? Yeah. That's kind of yeah. A, yeah. Although, you know, I'm, I do not for one second believe that he sits there and types it out. I think that there are people that he dictates to um, and more full them, I say. But um, I, uh, what I think, though, is that there are what it has done is he is sharing an authentic version of himself. And I think that what will happen is that politicians will be encouraged to share more authentic versions of themselves. And the the one that strikes me as really interesting um, is um, Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez. Thank you for yes. that, Drew. No yes, <laughs> um, I know her as AOC yes. uh, when I'm when I'm watching what she's what she's kind of doing. She is also presenting a very authentic persona yeah. on Twitter. Yep. And and um, but the thing that I think is so powerful about that in terms of resonating with uh, the voting kind of public, general mm. public, is that it's giving a window into the way in which politicians work not just on a political level but on a legislative level that people have not seen before because there are now more speeches from within parliament or within Congress that are being shared on social media and people are watching them. Now, that would never have happened um, five years ago that people would be watching snippets of speeches, whether it's Penny Wong censuring Fraser Anning or whether it's um, AOC talking about the New Green Deal and the the challenges around that. That is not something that we have seen previously and so I think it gives a window into um, into a different level uh, of the political system than has been seen before. And I think that's really valuable, particularly as more young people, as you know, and we talked about this before, you know, you look at Congress or you look at the Australian Parliament and it is largely full of older white males not ex, you know not exclusively but there but there is an over indexing of them when yep. you compare that to the general population and so i think by by enabling people to see a little bit more about what goes on in these places that determine so much of our lives it encourages other people to get involved yep. and um and so that kind of authentic um that authentic sharing and that um 
and what that does for broadening the visibility of what's happening um, at the political level is really powerful. And, you know, and I think we'll have Trump to thank for that because I think he has blazed the trail on that. Uh, you covered a bit of this in your previous answer, but I wanted to get your thoughts on um, whether you think sort of many media organisations are thinking about a post-Trump world yet and how they're going to stay relevant. I mean, is you know, when there's less sensationalist presidents in there, you know, are we going to rely on things like sort of authority um, again and sort of the day-to-day news cycle, as you mentioned before? Are they thinking about this at the moment? Now that's I don't know the answer to that question, Drew. I think that if I if you were in a media organisation. If you're in any organisation, you need to be thinking beyond the next 12 months. Yeah. You need to be thinking about the uh, the next three years, the next the next five years. I don't think, frankly, enough organisations do yeah. think beyond that kind of immediate horizon. But I think that from a strategic perspective, to stay relevant to, in any sense, to your customers or to the citizens um, that vote for you, you need to be thinking about that that longer term. Um, perspective. And so I would hope that media organisations are thinking about that post-Trump world and think about how they can leverage the, like the, like just pure gold that they've got at the moment in terms of the um, unceasing interest in, in Trump and Trump's America. Uh, and, and are thinking about what is it that they can learn about what's happening right now and how would they apply that in relation to the next president? Because it would yep. be a real shame if everybody just took a breath post-Trump and went, yep. oh, now we can go back to the way things were before. That, yep. would, be, that, would, be, that would be a shame. Now, yeah. I lead innovation and entrepreneurship, as you know, and that is, um, that is kind of like the essence of innovation is about thinking what is it about now yep. that I can transform into something that is going to do me well in the future. Yeah, because, yeah, I mean, there really is a risk there, right, with this uh, sense of complacency that, you know, Trump is virtually writing a lot of these stories himself, you know, day-to-day tweets and all yeah. that kind of stuff, and it's like what happens when that goes away? Yeah, yeah, and I think, you know, you might see you, you might see consolidation in the in the media landscape, yeah. um, but, I, but I think it's more that that is an ebb and flow that happens all the time mm-hmm. and there are other factors that come into play in relation to that. I mean, I see I'm perhaps a bit of a purist and I see the role of the media is really about um, reporting on the news of the day and I think it will just be different news of the day in a different in a post-Trump world. Maybe there'll be some airtime on other things that are important that we're just not talking about at the moment. Claire, thank you very much for joining us today. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thanks this week to the Bubamara Brass Band, David Hillowitz and Ketzer for their musical contributions and the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences at the University of Sydney for their studio assistance. We'll be taking a few weeks off for the Easter and Anzac Day break, but look forward to joining you again at the end of April. 